Something really interesting happened around here over the past few weeks. Our house groups have been doing a video-based study done by Pastor Andy Stanley called Irresistible. And it kind of stirred up a little controversy and a little discussion, and I like that. Well, at least the discussion part, you know, not the controversy part. Uh, controversy really isn't bad, by the way. Sometimes it's good as long as it, it's kept under control. But uh, I like that discussion part. Uh, Andy's book that he's written, his study that he did, this is based on some stuff that we all believe, you know, at least the basics of it. The Bible which is pretty important to us, is divided into two parts based on two covenants or two agreements that God made with people. The old covenant, so we call that the Old Testament, right? And the new covenant. Uh, the old covenant, and there's a third, by the way, the Abrahamic covenant, but we don't get too complicated on Sunday morning. The old covenant was completely fulfilled by Jesus and came to an end because it was over. Therefore, we are not, nor have we Gentiles, we non-Jews, ever been under the law of Moses. And that includes the Ten Commandments. I did a sermon about that a while back, right? We are not under the law of Moses. We're not under the Ten Commandments. Now, Andy's theme is that the reason that church is so resistible, where it used to be irresistible in the time of Christ, so resistible today, is because we try to blend old covenant stuff and new covenant stuff. And Jesus never intended for us to do that. Jesus is very specific about the fact that he did not come to patch an old system, to patch something new onto an old system, but that he came to create a, something completely new. And he likened trying to do that with putting an, a new patch on an old garment or putting new wine in old wineskins. And in fact, the battle with those who wanted to just patch Christianity onto Judaism was very fierce in the New Testament and in the times following. And so Andy's theme is we, uh, and I would agree with this, we must not base our faith and our practice on old covenant things and we must not mix old covenant promises and so forth into the new covenant. So do I believe everything Andy says in his book and in his study? Well, I'm going to say what my family's, I don't believe me all the time. I don't agree with me all the time. Uh, I certainly don't agree with you all the time or somebody else all the time. But I do agree substantially with the things that Andy teaches in that particular book. But I'm not here to defend Andy Stanley, right? You can read the book if you like. Rather, I have been asked by our staff, specifically Christian Jones and Todd and James, who have been leading house groups, to clarify our beliefs as they relate to the Bible and to this Old Testament, New Testament tension. And so that's my purpose today is to talk about those particular things. And we're gonna begin with this question, what is the Bible, right? What is the Bible? Anyway, I, uh, I brought one on to the platform with me. Uh, I have several Bibles uh, digitally right here, but I brought one up here because we think about that usually with a black cover on it. Uh, what is the Bible? Well, if I were to ask many of you that question, you would get a simple answer 
something like the Bible is God's word. Wouldn't you? Isn't that what a lot of you would say to me? Not, not, not all of you, but a lot of you would say the Bible is God's word. Well, let me a couple of definitions of what the Bible is. It's a little bit more than that. You know, it's, it, I, I would agree with that definition, by the way, but I might add some things to it. How about what does Wikipedia say about what the Bible is, right? And that, I mean, they know everything, whoever that is. They know everything. That's all of us. The Bible is a collection of sacred texts or scriptures. Varying parts of the Bible are considered to be a product of divine inspiration and a record of the relationship between God and humans by Christians. Now, Christians would accept all of the what we call the Bible as uh, divine communication with God and humans. Christians, Jews, Samaritans, and rest. Uh, I know who Samaritans are. I didn't know there were still some around, but evidently there are. I had to look up the Rastafarians part. If you want to know who that is, you look it up. <laughs> How about Biblica, International Bible Society? How do they define, what do they say the Bible is? The Bible is the account of God's action in the world and his purpose with all creation. The writing of the Bible took place over 16 centuries and is the work of over 40 human authors. It is quite an amazing collection of 66 books with different styles, all containing the message God desired us to have. Along with diversity, there's also remarkable unity throughout. That's a little, it says the same thing, right? The Bible is the word of God, but it kind of talks to us a little bit about how it's organized. Moody Bible Institute's been around for a long time. Moody Bible Institute, we believe that God, the Bible is God's word. The doctrinal, doctrinal statement of Moody Bible Institute affirms, quote, the Bible, including both Old and New Testaments, is a divine revelation. The original autographs, the reason I'm reading this, I like that phrase, the original autographs of which were verbally inspired by the Holy Spirit. The original autographs, that is, when the people first wrote it down. That would be the original autographs. What we have is copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. The English word Bible is derived from a, a Greek phrase through Latin, uh, ta biblia, which simply means books. We talk about the book right here, right? The book, the Bible. Well, it's actually there's 66 uh, manuscripts or books that make up this book that we call the Bible. Uh, a quote from the Gospel Coalition, while Christian, Christian use of the term, the Bible, taught to be traced to around AD 223 or about 200 years after Christ, the late biblical scholar F.F. Bruce noticed that Chrysostom, one of the church fathers, in his homilies on Matthew between A.D. 386 and 388 appears to be the first writer to use the phrase ta biblia to describe both the Old and New Testaments together. So maybe 300 years, 350 years after the time of Christ before uh, Old and New Testaments are joined together and called ta biblia. The, leading up to that time, Christians circulated the writings of the eyewitnesses, things we talked about last week, 
the eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ that were generally accepted as authoritative. That's what eventually made up the New Testament. It wasn't because the church council said this is the New Testament, although there was a church council that said that. It was because Christians from the time of Christ on began to write and accept these writings as authoritative. Christians of Jewish heritage would also have had the Old Testament scripture with them. So, the Bible, as we know it today, it took it a while to develop. The Bible is a library of 66 books written by 40 or so writers. You know, we don't know exactly how many. Over a period of 15 or 1600 years, we believe, I believe, that the Bible is the written form of God communicating with his creation. He communicates with us in other ways. The heavens declare the glory of God, uh, we learn in scripture. And he speaks to us in our hearts, but his revelation to us is in this library that we call the Bible. Now here's what a couple of well-known New Testament writers have said about the Bible. New Testament authors said about the Bible. First, the Apostle Paul. And what is perhaps the last message that we have from the Apostle Paul is a form of a letter that he wrote to a young protege of his, a, a young guy by the name of Timothy. Uh, and he's encouraging Timothy. Paul is in prison in Rome. He's evidently executed by Nero, uh, the Roman emperor, not long after he wrote this letter. Must have been an emotional thing for Timothy to have received. And we're going to pick this up uh, in what's defined as 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10. You, you Timothy, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance. Verse 11, you know my persecutions and sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured. Paul had had a pretty rough life uh, proclaiming the gospel of Christ. He says, yet the Lord rescued me from all, all these things that were happening in my life. I made it through. God rescued me from these things. And then he makes an interesting statement in verse 12. He says, in fact, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's, that's, that should be just kind of, if, if you're in, in, in a, uh, a, a, a hostile environment, you're going to be persecuted. There's always going to be somebody who's against what you believe. So in fact, everyone who wants to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Verse 13, while evildoers and imposters will go off from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But verse 14 says, but as for you, Timothy, here's what I want for you. I want you to continue in what you've learned and what you've become convinced of. Not just because you, you, I said it to you, but you have been con become convinced of this within yourself because you know those from whom you learned it. And verse 15 says, how from infancy, from the time you were small, you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Then he makes this statement about inspiration. Verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed. Uh, the, the King James Version says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that, verse 17 says, the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so Paul says scripture is God-breathed. Of course, he was commenting 
most of their Old Testament because that's all there was at that time. And then the Apostle Peter, near the end of his life, he was concerned that his fellow believers remember what they had learned. Uh, and God's written word was one of the things that would nurture and build up believers. And so uh, Peter says this, and, and he, he had been talking about how that he was an eyewitness. He said, you, you guys know that I saw the resurrected Savior. I am an eyewitness, but we have something else other than that. 2 Peter 1.19, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Well, how do we get those prophecies that are so reliable, Peter? Verse 20, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. Four, verse 21 says, prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So yes, these prophecies, these things were written down by human beings, but they were led along by the Holy Spirit of God. So let me give you this longer definition of the Bible, okay? Uh, the Bible is the written form of God communicating with, with his creation. God has communicated other ways, but it is the written form of God communicating with his creation. It's made up of 66 ancient manuscripts written by God's inspiration by about 40 different writers over a period of about 1,500 years. Okay, uh, that's a statement, kind of a complicated statement, I guess, but it is a statement that, yes, we do believe that the Bible, all the Bible, is the Word of God from the start to the finish. Second thing I want to mention to you is this, though. All of the Bible is God's Word and is true, but all of the Bible does not apply to you. All the Bible is true, but all the Bible does not apply to you. Now, there are some things written in the Bible that are true, but are very obviously not for you. And you would read it and say, no, that's not talking to me. Uh, God spoke to Noah in, Galatia, in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9. That says this is the account of Noah and his family. And then God says how he's going to destroy the, the world by a flood. And then in Genesis 6, 14... God says to Noah, so make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. You didn't try that when you read that verse, did you? Of course not. Because you knew it wasn't talking to you. It didn't apply to you. You weren't supposed to do that. That's obvious, right? I mean, anybody would know that. Later on, God said this to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Verse 1, the Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's house to the land I will show you. Well, did you read that and pick up and leave your family behind and move off somewhere? No. Obviously, you didn't. Verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. It's part of that Abrahamic covenant. Chapter 22, verse 18, continuing that thought. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So I just read those things because there's some stuff you read and you say, okay, all right, that, 
God wasn't talking to me. God didn't want me to do that. It's very, very obvious. And by the way, uh, when you read scripture, the devil talks. Uh, his, the devil's uh, words are sometimes recorded in scripture. You don't want to do what he says, right? Uh, Job chapter 2, verse 4, this devil is speaking. Skin for skin, Satan replied, a man will give all he has for his own life. That's a lie. There's a lot of you guys that would die for your family. You're not going to give it. You, you, you would die for your family. That's, that's the devil talking right there. A man will not give up everything for his own life. And then there's the fact that the Bible is divided into these two parts, Old Testament, New Testament, right? Now, I just one of the reasons I brought this on the platform is that here's my Bible, and it says Old Testament. I know that when I get to Genesis and get started, that's Old Testament. It's identified. And then when I get through Malachi and get ready to, me, to read Matthew, it says the New Testament, right? That's the way your Bible is. If you have a printed Bible, that's the way it is. You got the Old Testament and you got the New Testament. The Old Testament was written mostly in ancient Hebrew and was preserved by the nation of Israel. It contains the history of God's contact with his creation from creation to the end of the Jewish captivity. And there are 39 books or 39 manuscripts that make up the old, in, 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 in the Christian Bible. The, the Jews have the same content. They organize it differently and only divide it into 24. But in our Bible, 39 books. Most of the Old Testament is a record of God dealing with Israel under the Old Covenant. Hence, it's called the Old Testament. Choosing Israel to be his people was God's way of fulfilling his covenant with Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his seed or his descendant. And that seed or that descendant of Abraham was Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so the old covenant uh, is leading up to the time that Jesus would come. The old covenant, by the way, and we talked about this in our house groups, or the Mosaic covenant, is what's often called a suzerainty vassal covenant where a superior makes a conditional agreement with a lesser. If you will do this, I will do that. So as part of giving the law of Moses, including the Ten Commandments and hundreds and hundreds of other national laws, God said this to Israel in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 5. Actually, he said he told Moses to tell Israel this. Now, if you obey me fully, there's the if. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then, if then, then out of all the nations you will be treasured, my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, verse 6, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to, spoke, you are to speak to the Israelites. And God promised that he was going to prosper them if they would obey him and fight their battles if they would obey him and give them their own land if they would obey him. But they didn't. And so God kept the other part of his promise was, if you don't obey me, then I'm going to cast you out, cast you out of your land. And that's exactly what he did. He cast them out of their land. And by the way, uh, there's still some prophetic stuff attached to that. Uh, Israel ceased being a, a nation in about 70 AD when they rebelled against the, the Romans and the Romans uh, breached their city and destroyed their temple and scattered them all over the world. 
Uh, God said he was going to gather them back together again for the future, and in 1948, they became a nation again, so biblical prophecy we see being uh, fulfilled in that. But God kept his original unconditional covenant with Abraham. Even though he had to cast the Israelites out, he blessed the entire world through Jesus. That's what it's all about. It's about Jesus coming and blessing the world. So that brings us to the New Testament, right? There was the Old Covenant uh, with Israel, not with you, never was with you. The Old Covenant was with Israel, not with you Gentiles. Brings us to the New Testament. The New Testament consists of 27 books or ancient manuscripts that include letters and histories and prophecy written mostly in Greek. The new covenant was Jesus's unconditional promise to forgive and give the gift of eternal life to all of any nation, any race, any language who would have faith in him. John 3, 16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, Jew and Gentile alike. I love John 5, 24, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. In John 5, 24, very truly I tell you, Jesus says, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's a, that's a present tense, you got it right now. And will not be judged, there'll never be a time when you'll be con uh, judged guilty of your sins and cast into hell but he's crossed over from death to life. This is the new covenant. In Luke 22, verse 20, Jesus says this, uh, or this is an account of the Last Supper. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup, which was filled with wine or grape juice, is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. That's the new covenant, the old covenant was a national covenant with Israel. The relationship between God and Israel is different between the relationship than the relationship between God and you. And, I'll read this to you, the new covenant replaced the old covenant, which is why the new covenant is called new. The new covenant replaced the old covenant. <clears throat> Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. That's the old covenant. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I didn't come just to kick them out. I come to bring it to a conclusion, to be what it was intended to be, point toward me. I fulfill all of that old covenant, and it's done away with. In Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets, the old covenant, were proclaimed until John, or actually just that word proclaimed is not in the, the language, it's just were until John. You could say were proclaimed or, or were in existence or, or were in effect until John. Law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way in. We are under the new covenant, we believers are. Is there value in, in the Old Testament? Absolutely is. I'll talk about that in a minute. I'm not saying there's no value in the Old Testament. It is God's word. It is inspired of God. <clears throat> but we are not and never have been under God's old covenant, including the Ten Commandments. Um, <clears throat> and we're glad we're not. Now, somebody said, well, I think I'll just go out and murder somebody then if we're not under the Ten Commandments. Well, try that. You know? uh, 
what is morally wrong under the law of Moses was morally wrong before and is, moral, and is still morally wrong. And Jesus didn't lower the standard. Jesus raised the standards. Jesus said, didn't say thou shalt not murder. He said don't even hate anybody in your heart. He raised the standards. So the fact that we're not under the Ten Commandments doesn't have anything to do with morality. We're not under the Ten Commandments first because that covenant was with the nation of Israel. And it all goes together. Under the law, you couldn't mix two kinds of material uh, in one garment. You're all lawbreakers. I doubt seriously, well, you might have, somebody might have a 100% cotton garment on as long as you're not, as everything you're wearing is 100% com, uh, cotton, you're okay. You couldn't eat catfish. And you couldn't marry someone outside of your own nation. There were reasons for all those laws, but those reasons were fulfilled in Jesus. So we are not and never have been under God's old covenant, number one, because it was with Israel, not with us. Number two, we are not under the old covenant because Jesus fulfilled the old covenant and established the new covenant. That's what we're under. And we can be glad of that because the land law demanded perfection and perfection is impossible and what the law said to us, you're not good enough on your own. Only Jesus can save you. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul wrote this. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So I'm glad we're not under the law of Moses. I'm glad we're under the law of grace. Now, to be clear once again, what was morally wrong under the Ten Commandments has always been morally wrong and continues to be morally wrong. But the Old Covenant is simply not what guides and directs our life. What guides and directs our life is the New Covenant. So, for a few minutes, I'm just going to talk about this. Why should we trust the New Testament? Now, I covered part of this last week when I said there's credible evidence for eyewitness accounts that Jesus rose from the dead. I said, we believe in the resurrection because Matthew, an eyewitness, gave an account of that. I said, we believe in the resurrection because Luke, the historian, uh, interviewed and, and checked all the evidence and said, yes, Jesus resurrected from the dead. We believe in the resurrection because uh, Peter, uh, uh, encouraged Mark to write his gospel and then Peter uh, in his letters that he wrote said Jesus rose from the dead and I am an eyewitness of that and the apostle Paul and one of the greatest witnesses to the resurrection is James not James the apostle but James the half-brother of Jesus if you got family members that believe you are the son of God uh, that's usually pretty special he didn't believe before the resurrection, but he believed after. So I'm not going to go into all that again. And really not going to take a whole lot of time with this. By the way, if you, got, if you have an outline in your bulletin of today's message, I referenced three sermons that I preached previously and given the dates for those things, and you can look back and listen to them if you want to. I doubt that you will, but you can if you want to. Uh, but here's another thing. Textual evidence for the New Testament is far greater than from, it, from any other ancient document. This is, uh, there, there are so many ways to go, and I got a little book up here I'm going to reference in a minute, but textual evidence for the New Testament is far greater than for any other ancient document. The more copies of a piece of ancient literature you have, 
the more it can be verified. Today there are more than 20,000 ancient New Testament manuscripts. The earliest fragments of manuscripts goes back to the second century. Now, there's no way you can have the originals. They deteriorate over time. All you can have is copies. And so the oldest copy of a part of a manuscript that we have in the New Testament is in the second century or about 100 years after Christ. Compare that to other pieces of ancient literature. There are about 650 surviving ancient uh, manuscripts of Homer's Iliad. The earliest dates to the third century AD. That's about a thousand years after it was written. Not a hundred years like in the New Testament, but a thousand years. Aristotle's Poetics was written in 343 BC. The earliest manuscripts in existence is dated 1100 AD. That's about 1400 years. Caesar's Gallic Wars, history of the Gallic Wars, was written around 50 BC. There are less than a dozen existing manuscripts of the work. The oldest dates back to the 9th century AD. That's a span of about 1,000 AD. And yet these ancient works are all considered to be authoritative and reliable in spite of the fact that they're copies of copies of copies, hundreds of years older than the originals. Because in ancient times, copyists took their jobs seriously. They were meticulous about their accuracy. And one of the evidences of this is that the, uh, these manuscripts of the Bible or these other things are found in different places in the world and yet they still match with each other. Uh, you can check out my sermon, The New Testament Factor of Fiction from 423.17 if you want to and I talk more about those things. But um, there's just a lot. That doesn't mean the New Testament is inspired by God, by the way. All that means is that what we have is a reliable copy of what was originally written down. Now, uh, there's an interesting book. Todd used this book um, to teach the high school group at Starbucks on Sunday morning. He had all kinds of good things. You got to go to Starbucks on Sunday morning and study this book here called Can We Trust the Gospel, written by Peter J. Williams. Uh, in chapter one, and there's so many things, I, if I look through the, uh, uh, you know, the index of evidences of why we should trust the gospel, uh, I'm going to make a few comments from chapter one, what do non-Christian sources say? Chapter three, what did the gospel, or did the gospel authors know their stuff? He's give, he gives all sorts of internal and external evidence. Chapter four is called Undesigned Consequences. Uh, chapter 5, do we have Jesus' actual words? Chapter 7, what about contradictions? Chapter 8, who would make all this stuff up? But in chapter 1, uh, which is about non-Christian authors, he examines the writings of Tacitus, Cornelius Tacitus and Pliny the Younger, both of whom were Roman officials, and Flavius Josephus, who was a a Jewish general who got defeated, went over to the other side. One of the, he's probably has the best uh, reputation as, for being a, his, a historian of the ancient Near East during his period of time. So he examines these things, and here's one conclusion that he draws, just to draw you into the book a little bit. In summary, the picture we get from Tacitus and Pliny agrees in important ways with what we find within the New Testament. We can conclude that Christ was executed under Pontius Pilate. Yes, there is evidence of that. 
and was shortly afterward treated as God by a group of people. Yes, there's evidence that Jesus was crucified and there's evidence that people early on worshiped him as God by a group of people who retained the core Jewish belief in one that is, they wouldn't worship Jesus as God if they thought there were any other gods. Christianity also spread rapidly, and it was at times difficult to be a Christian. All this raises the question why Christianity spread so quickly, and how someone who had been publicly executed by the Romans and thus shown to be a loser could so soon be viewed as one to be worshiped. And after he examined the works of Flavius Josephus, he said this, if non-miraculous but otherwise similar sets of belief was attested in documents as close to the events as were the Gospels and among people as widespread as were early Christians, few people would have any difficulty believing these facts to be true. Now, what is, what is he saying there? Uh, he's saying, if it wasn't for the fact that the resurrection seemed so fantastic, that's just not what happened. If it wasn't for the fact that what the Bible claims, what the New Testament documents claim, seems so, fan so fantastic, they would be automatically accepted. The only reason, the only reason that people who reject the New Testament do it is because it just, it just couldn't have happened. It just couldn't have happened. They ignore the evidence so I can go online and I can find plenty of people who refute what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, you can. You can find people who would refute anything you believe or ever have believed or ever will believe. You can find somebody that's on the other side and has good reasons for being there. But the evidence, the evidence is good. He said, I don't need to be, you don't have to prove it to me. You don't have to prove it to me. I'm good. I'm good with that. I get a little worked up about it, I guess, because the evidence is there. I know, the, I know about the critics. I, I read the critics. But read something like this, too. It would be very helpful to you. Now, all I ask you to do is consider the evidence for Jesus. Same thing I asked last week. Consider the evidence for Jesus. We believe, to get back to my original theme, we believe that the Bible is God's word. Old Testament and New Testament, all God's word. God communicating with his creation. The Old Testament is called old because it was no longer We're not under the Old Testament. We're under the New Covenant. Thank God that we are. For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's you, that's me. That's anyone who has faith in Jesus and trusts in You have that opportunity. All you have to do is believe that Jesus died and rose again on the third day. Let's pray. Father, I know you're here with us today and I thank you for that. To take the things I've tried to say today and use them in a positive way. Help us to see that you care about us. You created us. You communicate 
with us. You care about us. You prepare a place for us so that when we leave this earth, it's the beginning, not the end. Thank you in Jesus' name.